Abolition is for Everybody is a podcast that tackles the sometimes difficult conversations around prison abolition. I'm Ra. I'm Adam. And I'm Crystal. In this season of Abolition is for Everybody, we will talk about harm. What creates it, what recycles it, and how we can find our way to meaningful means of repair. Just a reminder, friends, in this episode and every episode, we dive into very sensitive issues. This season is frameworked around violence. And though the title of this episode may give you some warning, remember that harm itself tends to create situations of alternate harms. There will probably be other painful topics brought up too. Take care of you. Hey, Graham. Welcome. It's nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making the time um, and being willing to do this. This season is all about harm, which is super rough to talk about. But this specific episode is called um, Abolition Addresses Robbery. Can you tell us, can you tell our listeners why you specifically are here? Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Graham Finocchio. My pronouns are he, him, his. In 2005, I'd been out of prison off of a DUI parole violation for 12 days. Uh, While I was in prison, I had written to someone who's close to me uh, and they wrote me back and told me about a situation where they were hurt. They were beat up and robbed by their boyfriend. Um, I'd spent this, the relationship with this person, I'd spent the entire relationship in like a protectorate role. So I immediately thought I'm going to get this person. That was the lifestyle that I lived at that time. And uh, so I'm going to get this person at some point. And 12 days out of this parole violation, I worked all day. I walked into a bar and lo and behold, this individual was sitting at the bar. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but I recognized him from pictures she had sent me. Uh, So I went through the process of figuring out a way to hurt him. Um, I plotted a way to get him outside, had conversations with him, pulled him outside. Um, and my co-defendant, which means someone who was arrested with me ultimately, uh, coaxed him into a back alley behind this bar. And, uh, I commenced to really laying into him and hurting him pretty severely. I took everything that he owned off of his persons, all of his clothes, except for underwear, uh, wallet, shoes, um, the cigarette he was smoking some really like ridiculous uh, like I was thinking, I thought I was making a point. And, and so that's what I, I did. I made him count backwards from a hundred and we ran. I about three, I went back to my co-defendant's house, showered. There was blood on me. So I washed the blood off. I, I went to the store to get cigarettes with my co-defendant thinking it was fine. Uh, the cops in Huntington beach knew me. So they stopped immediately. Uh, the victim, the survivor identified me didn't identify my co-defendant and I was taken in for a parole violation, which they used to do back then. And then I noticed that he was a very quiet person. So I noticed his lips were moving very fast and I found out that he was telling the cops everything that took place. Uh, And so I was charged with attempted murder and robbery. And after fighting the case for about two years, a year and eight months, uh, I was offered a plea. I was at jury selection, a plea it's copping out. A plea basically means that they are offering you a lesser sentence to get you to sign and plead guilty at that moment. They offered me a 15-year plea. I told my lawyer previously that at any point uh, I would take 10 or below because I know at a, tw- a 21-year-old person, uh, I-, I was involved in gangs. I was a skinhead. I was involved in white supremacist gangs. A uh, 21-year-old person of my 
posture and attitude is going to end up with a life sentence with anything more than 10 years. And I might end up with it then just based on the culture of what happens in prison. And I was offered a plea bargain, the 15 years. It was right after I'd selected the first two jurors or me and my lawyer had selected the first two jurors. Uh, I very quickly signed. And at that point, I decided like, I'm never going to go home. It is what it is. I'm just going to go to prison. I don't have anything out here anyways. And I made my way to prison. And uh, the plea was for robbery, second degree robbery, 211. Makes sense. Thank you um, for sharing all that. And particularly for um, defining the words. I think sometimes it's so easy to, um, you know, these experiences are so common once you've been incarcerated that like they just become as normal of words as the way like people would describe their bedding or, you know, household items. So um, I really, really appreciate that. And it looked like Crystal had a comment. So I'll. Graham, you talk a lot about, um, you know, the harms that you caused that particular night. Um, and you said that you went through this process of thinking like how you would hurt this person if you were to run into them. Um, can you share a little bit more about what what that was like for you and what that's like for you now after you know many many years of you know healing and doing the work that you currently do sure so that's an interesting question because i um I, from a very young age visualization has been a tool that i used uh, when i was in a lifestyle where i was doing harm to other people i could picture in my head exactly what i would want to do and then i would take steps so that that would be the result and still i mean i would be dishonest if i said that that doesn't take place now if someone cuts me off some visualization goes off in my head if i get mad at someone for doing something that i think is is rude or disrespectful there's visualization and it was kind of an escape when i was younger and i began to use it as a weapon as i got older if that makes sense an escape from what so i grew up in uh, orange county california there's a lot of misconceptions about Orange County. People think, oh, it's like the TV show. It's not necessarily all like the TV show, just certain parts. Uh, and I didn't grow up in those parts. Um, my family, I was raised by my grandmother and my mm -hmm. father. My mother was absentee in and out of the picture. They both were in and out of prison, addicted to heroin. Um, my father was very, very abusive. I experienced a lot of different levels and types of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, verbal abuse as a kid. Uh, and my escape was in my mind. Uh, I wasn't also very like social as a kid. I was a small, I was a very small kid. Um, and I was a white kid in an area that mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of white kids going to that school. Uh, so I got, you know, called names. I had a lisp that doesn't go over well in school. My grandma was English and I was raised to talk. I was taught to talk from her. So I had like a half English accent. I sounded very strange. Uh, and so I often didn't talk right. and I would I'd play with my dog or play by myself and play in my imagination. So that was the escape that I was looking for. I hear you talk about the visualization of how things played out and, and I can relate to that. Right. And, and when I was able to really understand what it was, you know, OCP, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, obsession, compulsion and progression. Um, I'm interested to know, like knowing that you have gr grown up and you have went through this system, how was you able to kind of, you know, break that cycle of thinking with obsession, compulsion, and uh, progression, um, and knowing that it's no, it's absolutely no resources in in prison. It took a long time, and the reason it took a long time was, you know, it, it often invo involves a choice by the individuals to begin recognizing the harmful behaviors. And as you mentioned, there's no there's no tools in prison. There's no prisons aren't setting up groups and having you take groups or 
like agendizing things that you need to do so you can work on yourself or mandating therapy. None of those things happen in mm-hmm. prison. And uh, I would I would be surprised to find someone who says that that was their experience in at least California prison, if not all prisons. And so I entered prison thinking, as I mentioned to Raw earlier, I mentioned prison expecting to stay. Uh, you know, I didn't have a life sentence, but I would do the things that uh, put me in a position to excel within the gang culture inside, right. climb the ladder, so to speak. And uh, I would do those things and I would climb and I would get into a position of power and I'd have, you know, whatever merit, whatever degree of like respect from the mm-hmm. people that are around me. Uh, and that took, you know, 12 and a half years, multiple shoe terms. I spent eight years within my incarceration within the shoe or within administrative segregated housing, um, which is the hole for folks that don't know the hole in the shoe. The shoe is like prison within prison. Uh, you're super secluded. You have you have uh, like zero access to anything. Right. You have one appliance. You're shackled every time you come out your cell. Isolation. Yes, absolutely. Which heals nothing. There's zero like that doesn't do anything. It's a punitive measure that does nothing. Uh, and I spent the majority of my time like that. And I think like the first steps towards transformation came just based on age. You know, at the age of 30, between 30 and like 33, I started just like not wanting to be aggressive anymore. I was tired. My, you know, I get hurt a lot more easily because I was older. And also like, I just didn't have like the degree physiologically, like the degree of testosterone running through my body that I did when I was in my twenties. I didn't. And I'd already proven myself on so many levels within that culture that I'm like, I'm not going to keep fighting for people's approval for my whole life. So part of the step away was that, uh, that didn't mean I stepped away from everything. It just meant like, I thought, okay, well, I can just be one of the older guys in prison and that'll be fine. And then I ended up going to this prison in uh, Soledad, which is in Central Valley called CTF. It was a level two. I'd spent two years when I got kicked out of the shoe on a level three and then my points dropped and I went to a level two and that was solid ed. And I got to tell you, like, I hated it there. I hated that prison because there were so many people talking about good stuff, like (laughs) people talking about causative factors, people talking about healing, like listening to one another. And that just wasn't active listening. Absolutely. And like there was, you know, probably 30 to 40 groups. Uh, excluding even like NA or AA and educational programs. Uh, And I learned from being there that these are things that the people at the prison had designed, developed, and put into play. Not the guards, not the counselors, not the psychologists, the people in the prison or community-based organizations were putting into motion within this prison. And like I said, I I hated it at first, but as I'd walk laps on this huge yard, because Soledad has like the the biggest yard in CDCR, it's massive. I'd walk laps and I'd hear people talking and my ears would perk. And I'd start getting drawn into these conversations as I met people in my wing and I'd talk the way that I had always talked about who knows who. And, you know, what's happening over here, what yards are good, what yards aren't good, who on the streets did what kind of dirt. Right. The, the normal gossip. Yeah, there was no reception like these these older folks that were in, like mostly serving life that were in the wing with me were were saying like, now nah, let's talk about like the why. Let's talk about what happened to get you to the point where you think this is important. And I didn't realize how much of a shift that was until I started engaging in conversation with folks like that. Uh, so over the course of two and a half years. I was in that prison for four years. And over the course of two and a half years, I um, I began attending a group here to get out of my cell because I was on C status. C status is restriction while you're on the main line. So it's like they take your TV. You have nothing. You're stuck in your cell. Right. One Punishment. Hour. Punishment. And so I, I began like get, using groups to get out of my cell. 
and you know, I'm a social person nowadays. And so I, I started getting engaged in the conversations and really weaning some benefit. Now that didn't mean that I was taking necessary steps. It just meant that like, I was starting to learn that the things I was doing were not, were not healthy, were not okay. And weren't helping anybody. I, I'm really glad you brought up age. That is a big um, discussion point in the work we do with abolition, as you know, because because people do age out of crimes. That is a, a real a real thing. And robbery is very, very often called, um, caused specifically by, by youth, um, desperation, being poor and mm-hmm. being mentally ill. And when mm-hmm. you start really looking at those causative factors, the way we respond to it seems less and less reasonable. I just did it now, I realized, and so did a, a few of us, or a few of the other hosts in the end. Um, but we mentioned what you do now and why you would know these things. Can you talk a little bit about that? So kind of trailing back on the story at about two and a half years, I started attending a lot of groups. I began attending college. I was uh, like expanding my mindset. I felt like um, I was rebelling against what the system was designed to do by doing these things. Like I was digging into myself, which they tell you to not, you have to always be concerned and be shamed by the stuff that you've done before. And uh, that, like I said, I didn't like step away from everything. I was still political in the yard. I ended up catching this case, uh, which means a new case inside, like a new arrest for drug distribution. And they took me to the hole and I'd been attending NA and AA and that had opened some doors in terms of uh, accountability. Like right. the the fifth step, basically the fourth and fifth step are all about accountability. You find the areas where you were harmed, what you felt, then you identify your part. And through that process- This is in, in, in a uh, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcohol Anonymous, right? Yes. Any 12 step program utilizes a similar mechanism. Okay. So that accountability measure of the fourth step, uh, an area where you were harmed, the emotions that you felt from that, uh, and then walk you into what is your part in this? I began to realize I had a very active part in a lot, whether it be dishonesty, whether it be um, like, there's a whole list of different measures that it could have been. And I began to realize that, but albeit I went to the hole. And I sat in the hole on a four-month shoe term, literally the shortest shoe term that I've ever done, the shortest time in whole hole I'd ever done. And I was just destroyed. I was isolated. They uh-huh. kept me in a cell by myself. They had me on a tier where I had no one I could communicate with. And I just sat in that cell and tore myself apart with using this four-step mechanism. And I say tear myself apart because quite literally, it felt as if I was ripping, yeah. ripping myself apart. It's not like a clean cut. It's not a mechanic. Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't just... It's very, very roughshod. So I began unpacking some of the trauma by myself and I made a resolution that uh, like, I know the thing, what I'm doing isn't working. I know that it's not serving the people that I love. I know that it's not serving the goals that Mm -hmm. I actually want in life, which over the two and a half years I had identified. Uh, So what am I going to do? I'm going to go back to the yard I was on, which is very hard to make happen. Sometimes they transfer your points of race. I'm going to step away from the gang culture that I was deeply embedded in at that time. I'm going to do so on the yard openly so that other people can see that that is something that's doable. Uh, And I'm going to attend every group I can. I'm going to reverse the time I lost. I just began digging in. And it's the first time that I'd done something like that for myself. I understand robbery is an act of harm. Uh, but I think that it's very important to emphasize that harm, hap- harm, like what we do, our actions are a form of communication, not just our words, not just our body language, but right, the behavior. things that we do are another right. form of language. Right. Absolutely. And the language that I'd been living in had just discarded myself as something that was no, va- had no value. 
And in that cell, I began to yes. see that, you know, be, be as it may that I'm in prison and that I did harm, I have value and I can contribute something. And so I continued that path for the next 18 months, beat the case in court, literally based on uh, the work that I was doing. Like I, they, they said, okay, we're going to dismiss the case because you're creating news, you're doing stuff within this community and we want to just dismiss this. It was, it was phenomenal. Um, and I ended up going home on February 10th of 2019. You know, you said something that kind of triggered me that that I would like to kind of ask you to share on a little bit is when you talked about, uh, you know, growing up in things that happen in behavior and stuff. And would you would you say it's safe to say like a lot of the trauma that you experience, you have adopted in a, some sort of way to kind of like act that up on, on others, um, especially like, you know, getting that call and, you know, you get that call and you already visualizing. Do you think that came from um, like, you know, some some of the things that you, that you have witnessed? I think so. Uh, so one of the areas I identify in other work that I do is like targeting patriarchy. Uh, and I think that the patriarchal expectation that was placed on me by my father created a right. set of tapes in my head that said, I, I have to do this. Like there is no other way. Right, this false belief system. Exactly. This is what men do. This is the why. The why is a super like a box with a hollow bottom. There's really no clear answer. And I have to do these things. And, uh, you know, as a kid who was like beaten severely, sexually abused, the value, the value that I felt for myself at a young age wow. was non-existent. Uh, and then moving forward, there's this key point in my life uh, where I was, I came home, I was in a fight with an mm -hmm. argument with my dad. He was, we, I'd been out of the house for several months. I came home, we get in an argument. He lays into me, literally just smashes my head into an open dishwater. The spikes cut into my face. I run to my room. I grab this Nerf hockey stick. I haven't played hockey in a day in my life. Don't even know why I had that hockey stick. And uh, I, like, I waited by the door. I could hear him barreling down the hallway. I waited by the door and I swung, fully intending to not hit him, fully intending to hit the doorway of the room directly uh -huh. across the hallway to stop him from coming at me. And I missed, oh, I hit him wow. right in the face. And he looked like it broke his nose, blood all over the walls. I bailed out my window. I knew my father was going to kill me. He's going to murder mm. me for this. Uh, but I also felt like redemption at that point, which is a strange thing to say. I felt like I had empowered myself through violence. And I used that continually through the rest of my life to say, oh, violence is language that I know. It's simple enough. And that's that's how I lived the next 25 years of my life was in a, embedded in violent gang activity. I found like I found my I felt like I found my manhood in that moment, right. which is complete nonsense but that's what it because of all the messaging around patriarchal expectations when i took right. a violent action i was rewarded with freedom i was free from the house i could do what i want i had a story to tell people to get more right that respect that that false respect absolutely absolutely right and i like how you explained that because you know it led up to the point of you know what happened what happened that night but more importantly, it's something that you said that I would like like to, to kind of just get a little bit more insight on is when you talked about like prison and how they don't have things designed or set up. And it's up to, you know, the loved ones inside that kind of want to take that initiative to do better. Like how 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 has been the, the transition from knowing like the limited resources in that prison gives us and it's absolutely nothing to being able to come home and have that space? It's in, so I still go into prisons to deliver program um, and they are still difficult. I want to point out that like when we did set up programs in prison, 
the administration does everything. And this isn't every, I'm, I feel safe to assume that every prison does this. The administration okay. set barriers in play to stop us from doing so. For sure. You can't have this space during this time. Right. You can only have these right. people. This restrictions. person can't go. Exactly. And so those restrictions impeded, but I was in the lucky position of the advantageous position at CTF to have so many groups that it was almost as if the administration couldn't stop it, although they probably very well could. Um, and out here, you know, the, the culture has shifted a lot. Uh, there are there's more openness to community based response, not as much as I'd like, but there is within community organizations, group homes, domestic violence uh, organizations. They identify that the system isn't working as it is uh, and that it's lacking something. And they believe and I believe that what it's lacking is that dialogue, that deep, right. vulnerable dialogue right. that you and I could have in, mm-hmm. within a group setting that everybody has the opportunity to grow from. Graham, you know, you're able to trace back what happened that night to your childhood and now you're able to identify it as you know patriarchy and as I was thinking about you coming today another aspect I'd like to highlight is the systems that you were talking about and the systems that we have set up um, where a lot of people go and you know commit robberies out of desperation and for survival I have a loved one who has an addiction and I know a lot of the times they go out and rob to feed that addiction. I have a cousin who suffers from substance abuse and has schizophrenia. I remember as I was a young girl, like his father coming to my house all the time and asking my dad for help. And uh, not that long ago, he went and robbed a store and just like scared everybody in there. And um, now they're threatening him to give him uh, 25 to life. And I often, you know, I always think about the times in my childhood that I saw his father come and I always think about like what could be done differently um you know we we never talk about these systems of desperation that we've set in place we were like oh 25 to live well that's too bad but he shouldn't have stole that store you know but we, we never talk about the before so I just I just wanted to highlight those stories as we talk about yeah. you know how abolition addresses uh robberies Absolutely. And I, I fully agree with what you said. I think um, so. Something I, I don't think I expanded on earlier is the fact that I grew up poor and my experience of life was there's the haves and the have nots. I had significant advantage that I wasn't seeing at that time because of my whiteness, uh, but poverty level, certain life experiences, that was not my privilege. And so I thought that there was just a group of people who had all the kids at school that had all the nice stuff. And there was us, my sister, myself, my family. And at an early age, I was stealing this right. robbery that was much less a robbery than a physical mm-hmm. act of violence was not the first time I'd taken someone's stuff. I had mm-hmm. taken stuff because I wanted it. I remember right. multiple occasions, many occasions in my life where I was like, I need that. I'll take it. And it just became an issue of access. And that's not to justify my actions. But at a young age, what kind of what kind of thinking around consequences, consequential thinking would I have that would tell me that this is wrong if I'm getting a payoff from it? Right. That gratification from me. Absolutely. And so at that point, I wasn't thinking about what it would cost me if I got caught, which I did many times. I was thinking around the payoff of having it right then. Right. The fact that I had something that I wouldn't have been able to obtain otherwise talked a little bit on the podcast before about how I was um, raised really differently than a lot of people in this um, community, certainly very differently from most formerly incarcerated people in that we were on the side of the haves. And a couple things that struck me in your story was um, early on, you said that the cop knew you and just the level of over-policing that takes in a neighborhood for a single cop to recognize really 
anyone. And yeah. the areas that they go is just indicative of another an, another trauma that your life was facing every single day, you know, just knowing that you were being patrolled just for living, really. And um, and then also Crystal mentioned your visualization technique, which in communities of haves, I should say, they um, that's a that's a huge asset, you know, and in children, that is something that would have been found out, selected, taught to do exactly what you do now, which is lead and heal, because those are the skills necessary to take someone from an idea to a possibility. And um, I wanted to bring those up because those are the types of resources we could be mm -hmm. providing. And those are the types of direct actions we could take that might minimize um, that type of situation. And also because there are resources in those communities. We often think about abolition as like providing resources towards that community. But there is so much oh, that those yeah. communities can bring to us. Like it brought us you, right? So like that's that's like a huge asset that came from this community that we as a society have, um, I guess, forsaken under the label of a crystal called systems of desperation. And um, I just think that should be said that you came out of there anyway. <laughs> so. yeah, I like I like the way that you framed that. And like just as patriarchy and toxic masculinity oversimplify masculinity and they make it seem like it's these four things or three things in, in one result, emotionlessness. Right. The same thing happens with harm. Uh, we utilize punishment. It oversimplifies justice. It oversimplifies. Oh, this person hurt someone. They need to be hurt. Right. We're going to take them, lock them away, ship them to some rem remote place, have guns on them, take all their liberties. And the uh, arbitrary amount of time is what will fix this. 15 years, 25 years, 40 years, 150. That will fix this because they're healing. The people who are harmed, they're healing. And they have an opportunity to make a different decision. Yeah. But the amount of shame that goes into that process from court all the way through for the person almost negates the opportunity of healing. Right? right. So many times in my life, I've allowed the tapes that are playing in my head from things that I've been told about myself to steer. And it, it takes doesn't it wasn't something that wasn't that's happened and now better. Like it's still something I work through today. Also. The survivors are offered zero healing. There is zero that is provided by the state for folks who are harmed. And that's a really interesting point because I paid 55% of every dollar that went in my book <laughs> to those survivors and they ain't getting mm -hmm. a thing. Zero support. Right. Right. Now I like I like how you touched on something that that I want to kind of kind of kind of expand on as well is when you talk about, you know, somebody that 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 is going through the system, right? Going through the county jails. And it's even more like violence and different things is even more perpetuated. Right. Especially if you are involved in any kind of lifestyle that's related to yeah. gang culture. You know, I think what takes place, the reason that gang culture is so prevalent in prison isn't just because uh, because people who are in gangs are getting arrested. It's a leveling. They take everything from this group of people. When you get off the bus, they divide you by race. They divide you potentially by age or by region. They house you with people of the same uh, a cultural background and the same age group, that's the standard that they hold for that. And everybody's leveled at a level of nothingness because you have almost zero access to anything. So they group you with people who you identify as. And if you're a gang member, you're like, how can I make this shitty ass situation better? I'm gonna have some stuff. So I'm going to sell drugs. I'm going to make sure that nobody can harm me because it's a very aggressive environment. So mm -hmm. I'm going to harm first. I'll get off right. first, simple as or that. Even, so, or even robberies, right? Even robberies that, that still takes place from, from oh, just being sure. inside, you know, uh, yeah. between the have and the have nots, right? Which is another yeah. example of it's being perpetuated and how come this is continuing to happen and continuing to be this separation, you know? For sure. And CDCR has, they've taken measures recently and I think they're following blueprints from other states of like an NDPF model 
which is uh, basically programming yards, yards where you can go and program and there's no gang activity versus general population yards or SMY yards where there is still gang activity and there might not be as many programs. Uh, and I think it's very important to address the fact that reforming the culture of prison doesn't solve anything. Violence still takes place on these yards. Uh, aggression still takes place. Uh, it's not really solving anything as much as it's just dividing people further uh, and making CDCR look fluffy and nice. And that's not really the case. If you were to take all of the harm that happens to a person who's incarcerated out of prison, the guards, the guns, the weapons, the cells, the restriction of property, the distance from home. If you took all of that out, you'd have a treatment center or a mental health facility. All of that, all of that taken out, you don't have prisons at all anymore. It's a culture of violence and you put people in that culture of violence. And of course, that that exists still. I think, um, obviously, I'm speaking to the women's prisons experience, and I know our breakup of gangs is kind of fundamentally different than how it um, shows up in men's prisons. But one thing that struck me early on is um, in my time was that I kind of felt like people clung so strongly to their gang culture because it was a culture, which is something you're allowed to keep. You know, they take everything else away from you and you're allowed to keep this one community. And yes, it's a community where the language is violence, but that violence is born out of a understood need for things and an understood respect and valuing of certain people. Like even when you were telling your story, you were talking about how uh, you were like a protector figure in someone's life. And I found that a lot with the women I knew who were in gangs, that they were the protector in people's lives. And so this community provided them language and tools for that. And we never we never supplant that with anything different. And I think in prisons, and this kind of like brings us to like what we're trying to address in this season, which is like what what heals us in prison. And of course, you know, it's not the prison, but it is those communities. And I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on how those communities form or how we could do them outside of this like forced environment. I think uh, like one thing we could do, we do within our work, just addressing language. Instead of asking what's wrong with that person, ask what happened to that person. I think that's a very powerful shift in language. Uh, because as I said, like actions are is a form of communication. Our behavior is a form of communication. So what is this person saying when they do this? Um, right. and, and I think that that invitation, the first time I felt human was in, in the groups that I was in, in the prison I was at. And every time I left those groups, this mm -hmm. is why I did six hours of groups a day, plus college, plus the work that they require you to do was because, Incredible. yeah, I was hungry for someone to just listen and hear, like I wanted to be heard. And through that, I learned to hear other people. And through that, I built a community of people that hold each other accountable, who are still my friends today, that are out of prison for the most part, that are still my friends today. Um, and so I think just hearing people, hearing what they say and asking yourself, what are they really communicating through this action or through these aggressive undertones or overtones? What were you communicating, uh, Graham? I don't know if that's too much of a deeper, heavy question, but um, looking back um, at your young self, like, w what do you think you were communicating maybe uh, that night or, you know? I was communicating insecurity, deep embedded insecurities and fears and not being enough and I've literally, I, at a young age, I had, you know, I'd set rules on my refrigerator. I, these are my chores, grandma, dad. These are the things I have to do. I wanted some sort of structure in my life because I was free to do what I wanted. And I never got that. Uh, I got in a fight in second grade, my first fight in school. And uh, I was suspended. My dad got me in the car, smacked me very, very hard in the face. It was quiet, very mm -hmm. quiet car ride home. We turned the corner. The first thing he says is, did you win? And that put an emphasis on the fact that like, if I'm not winning, I'm losing. 
Mm-hmm. Like that, I'm going to have to win because I don't have the tools. I don't have access to the things I need. I'm going to win however I can with what I've got. Mm. Yeah. And then you learned that maybe like harming someone and getting away with it or maybe not getting away with it that one time was winning. Yeah. And I, I think more, it was less about the actions. I'd compromised my, my value scale by this point at 21 years old. My value scale was just based on acceptance all the while telling myself like, I don't, I'm a free person. I don't give a crap what this person thinks of me. I'm an individual. I do what I want, but I lived 25 years seeking other people's acceptance through this transactional lens. Like what you can do for me makes you a value to me. And so I'll be close to you. And it was, it was, it was very dehumanizing for me. And it took a lot to realize that, you know, Graham, that's one thing that, you know, as I got into this abolition work, that I think about often is how to get folks to think about the why, like the why behind the behavior. What is that person trying to communicate with us, you know, with the the harm that they may be causing? Um, There's this one story that I read that that stuck with me um, with the Mal that I read that um, he talked about struggling a lot in life and going and robbing, um, you know, some bread or some money off of a the the cashier in the front and how he was caught and um that was like his second or third strike I believe and he was he's in prison now for the rest of his life and for over you know some cash from the register and a loaf of bread and every time I think about that story um and my eight-year-old nephew I remember one time he overheard me telling that story to my sister and he just was in complete disbelief that this person was spending the rest of his life in prison because he was hungry enough to go steal some bread and some yeah. money from, from the cash uh, register. And that's one thing that I often think about in communicating with my loved ones or with non-abolitionists in, in, in my, my world is um, thinking about the why. Like, what is this person communicating with us? Like, this person was hungry and he stole some bread and now he's in prison for the rest of his life you know going through even more trauma and more harm and being away from from his family yeah yeah that's very that's severe and i think that like the public as a whole especially non-abolitionist folks uh, are told like this is the solution this is what we've got yeah they're never really they don't discuss the money that goes into that system mm-hmm. They don't just discuss the statistics with a recidivism rate anywhere between 60 and 80 percent, which is if you take 10 people that have been to prison, line them up on the wall, six to eight of those people are going back based on numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's not working. And I think that people just think or rather don't think maybe it's it's about not really having not really having any desire to think about that uncomfortable subject of like, hey, this sh- this thing we're putting billions of dollars into doesn't work. Like it's not serving the purpose that it's telling us it's serving. Out of sight, out of mind, right? And yeah. you're you're told you're safer. This person who stole this loaf of bread shouldn't have stolen and you're safer by him being away in prison for 25 years. Absolutely. Part of that is just like not doing the cultural work, right? Like, um, what are the values of this country? Are things more important than people? You know, these mm. are questions that people just don't ask themselves. And we see that a lot currently in the media with all these like rising, ri- I'm in air quotes, 
because my <laughs> listeners can't see me. Yes, there are so many situations where things are being like stolen from stores and they're in the, yes. they're blown into these articles that include raising criminal charges across the board, undoing a lot of the like the work we've done in this space yeah. to to get people home sooner, to get them the resources they need. And ultimately what that messaging is when you when you vote that way, abolitionist or not, you're saying that things are more important than people. Yeah. And is that a value you really want to hold, you know? And I don't I don't know if like you can speak to like when you were a youth, you said there was a lot of like smaller robberies that you may or may not have gotten um, caught on. Like, did you have that sense growing up that things were like one of the most important things to have? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I mean, if you take from someone else, the emphasis is made through the punishment you receive. You know, in in fourth grade, I took I don't know if y'all remember in school, they had the photos, the pictures that they took every year and they'd come yes. in this big manila envelope thing and they'd have the pictures. <laughs> so back then credit cards existed, but parents were putting money in those envelopes. So I walked by the school office with this kid uh, that I was going to school with. It was after hours and the little sliding window of the school office is open. I didn't get to take pictures that year. I didn't have money for pictures. And I saw these pictures and I grabbed them out the window and took the money and the wrath that they brought down on me for doing, I was expelled. I was sent to a different school. Uh, and really what I think I was communicating is that I was hurt that I didn't have those pictures. Yeah. Definitely that taking that money from, I bought a whole bunch of stuff from Sanrio for two girls that I liked <laughs> that were in my class. And that was what I did with the money. It wasn't even for me, but I wanted to be able to do that. And I didn't have the access to it. And their solution was let's expel him and move him schools and move him away from all of his friends, which is, you know, it's similar to what happens now where there are systems that we create and which people find themselves needing to rob um, in order to survive or, you know, do what it, they have to do. And then when they get caught, we punish them for it. It's like we set them up and then they're out here trying to survive. And it's just like punitive. You're going to prison now. Um, it just it doesn't make sense. Yeah, doesn't at all. Yeah, it doesn't at all. Yeah, I was just going to add um, to, to what you shared with that story, because, I mean, that 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 takes another look, a deeper look, should I say, about, uh, you know, what what do we have in place? Right. And, and me answering that question and kind of just using a, using your scenario, which I can identify with, because I remember, you know, doing some stuff and robbing and that's me saying, hey, I don't have access. And instead of like, you know, me getting suspended and then I'm coming home and, you know, getting spanked and getting whoopings for it. Right. It should have been, you know, you shouldn't be stealing. You shouldn't be doing this. But how about we try to give you some type of assignment so you can be able to work for it than to say, hey, you know, since you stole this, we're going to expel you. You're going to get whooped. And, you know, this is how we do punishment. Like, I, I think that's why we do need to have things in place. And I mean, what do what would you say of what do we have in place? I mean, at this point, and I'm not, not super clear on like an elementary school. I think at this point, uh, more and more uh, divesting from police police organizations and prisons and the harm that takes place within those and investing in community-based organizations has helped some communities, not to the degree that it could, nowhere near the degree that it could. Um, they have domestic violence classes. They are a probably, it's evidence-based curriculum, but it's probably the most bland and unuseful tool that you could come up with the same with <laughs> DUI classes, everything along those lines. I think um, like an in-person connection is required, meaning like we identify, we have areas of identification, you and I, Adam, and we have areas where we don't identify right. and in levels of harm with it, both of us have uh, a common ground standing on mm -hmm. having us in community together to work through that stuff and identify where the harmful behavior comes from is needed. And that isn't what we get right now. That's not what's happening right now, but it is, it's a much more common sense approach. Abolition is a much more common sense approach to the humanity of everyone around right. us. We right. just, we take that 
that objectification approach. Right. This right. isn't a human. After they do this, this is after I stole that stuff from the school. I was the kid who breaks into the school from that point on. Mm-hmm. That, that was always the stigma mm-hmm. that I had. After I came, went to prison, I was always the convict or the former inmate or the former criminal. The label yeah. stays. Right. Labeling. Right. Thank you. Thank you for, for answering that. Uh, I, I just like to ask, uh, you know, reflecting on everything that's been said that you discussed today. Um, do you think it's something you may want to add on to or something that, that you we have missed or um, something you might want to might want to reflect on? I don't know if it's something that was missed or that I didn't, I I probably talked at length about this subject, but I think it's important. I really want to emphasize the fact that prisons are doing exactly what they're intended to do. And it's not working for the purpose that they are telling us. And what I mean by that is it houses and warehouses people, gets them to do the work for them, uh, gets them to feel less human about themselves. If I could give you a list of the stuff that a guard has told me about me, my person, when they don't even know anything about me except my C file, add that to the tapes I got as a kid. By the time I came out of prison, like everything was stacked against me. The likelihood of me going home was slim to none, right? Mm. Uh, because even if I wanted to go home, I didn't believe that I was worthy of going home, that I would do good, that I could do anything in life except what I'd been doing before. And that's all from the voices of other people, which in my insecurity, I uh, needed that approval. I needed that acceptance from other people. Even if it's some stupid guard on a wing, like tell me that I'm coming back the day I parole. That's some terrible stuff to do to a person. Yeah. Right. Very harmful. Ver- verbal verbal abuse like is one of the, one of the key things that takes place in prison uh, everyday basis. I mean, even with somebody just getting mail, you know, and they say, they may say your last name and say, oh, you finally got a letter today. Like that can be hurtful to somebody yeah. that may not get mail. So harm is always caused. And, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing that and, and pointing that out, you know. To end us with a little bit of hope, Graham, um, what is one tangible action that our listeners can take away from, from this episode? One tangible, tangible action is, I think the shift in language that I spoke of earlier, I think is super important. Instead of saying, instead of using these labels, monster, criminal, all of these terrible things that people call it, like identify folks as humans and then ask what happened to them to lead to this. Uh, it does. It leads to a degree of empathy on a personal level that that can heal, that can heal in the long term, that can build community. If I was to say something you could do communally, it would be talk to your neighbors, communicate with your neighbors. Like, who doesn't talk to their, like, no, in my experience, when I was growing up, I didn't talk to my neighbors. I didn't know the community I lived in. And I felt completely isolated Mm -hmm. communicating with your neighbors and the people around you learning uh, what their needs are, learning how you can support one another allows you to build the community that prison and policing takes from us. It allows you to care about people outside of your immediate sphere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really like what you said, Graham, about using people centered language and what you said earlier today Uh, My tiny, tangible uh, thing for our listeners would be to think of the why. And like you said, Ram, think of what is that person trying to tell us with the behavior, the action that is happening. So instead of, you know, thinking right away away of like the harm and what's happening, think think of the why, think of the the human, um, look at it through like an empathetic perspective. I think, I think for me, it would, it would have to be hearing, right? As I was listening to your story, I, I, I noticed how you spoke about, you know, being heard when you was able to get around um, a community that gave you that space, right? And being able to be heard and being able to speak, right? Was you was able to release um, what you was feeling, what you have kind of been bottling up, but you was able to kind of get some type of 
help and insight on where you can start to to come become better you know what i'm saying and i think that goes along with right with what you're saying you know being um in community you know knowing your neighbors you know being able to have that open door policy as they call it being able to speak and communicate you know oh that's totally that's totally true um and it's it's unusual to know your neighbors in most neighborhoods now you know i'm i'm always the odd one out when i come <laughs> over with phone numbers and cookies but um um, I think it's important part of my self-work. Um, I guess my tiny thing would be to just spend a couple minutes examining your cultures. Um, cultures aren't just things that exist mm. on their own in a silo. There are things that are built by the people in them. And if there is something that you can do to make your culture a little kinder, a little more patient, and a little bit more prepared for the world that they're gonna meet, I think, then that's a, a worthwhile couple minutes. This isn't the full story of the full humans involved in these experiences or every complete community or person who has gone through experiences that parallel. We have walked this gently so as not to diminish the story, but to highlight and amplify the hearts involved. For a safe discussion that goes further in a larger but more community-based space, please join us at Abolition Corner. For more information, visit initiatejustice.org slash abolitioncorner.